KRCL 90.9 FM, HD1, Salt Lake City, Ogden, Provo, 96.7 FM in Park City, and on the web at krcl.org. Utah Diné Bikea works to protect and preserve cultural uses of public lands by tribes. To learn more about their programs, including art, traditional foodways, and cultural sensitivity courses, visit utahdinebikea.org. That's Utah, D-I-N-E-B-I-K-E-Y-A-H.org. Support for Radioactive on KRCL comes from our sustaining members and Mark Miller Subaru. I am Nick Burns. This is Radioactive on your Community Connection 90.9 FM. We are, of course, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creative. DIY creatives, because I am sure you are more than one. Thank you for plugging into your community with me tonight and with Laura Jones, who's going to join me. Tonight on the show, we're going to have a panel take it up again, this expansion of the freeway from Farmington to Salt Lake, the maw of concrete. Um, seems to be unending, and it is such poor forward thinking. But Taylor Anderson of Sweet Streets will be joining us. Janet Fisher, who just lives a block away from us here on Argyle Court, 25-year resident there, clearly at risk of this expansion. And from the West Side Coalition, Dan Strong will be with us as well. Also on the show, the Natural History Museum of Utah is launching its Native Voices Initiative to center indigenous knowledge in its collection, inviting in tribal members um, and so on to look over the collection, add the stories, and actually be a part of what's going on up at the museum. And Laura Jones, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and that's what we're going to devote rallies and resources to tonight on this, the last day of Native American Heritage Month. And uh, if you have been uh, listening throughout the month on Tuesdays with Rashawn Leak, we've been doing a lot of crossover with the hosts of Living the Circle of Life, Valine MC and Dave John. You can check out all those shows online at krcl.org. Go to that programs tab and you'll see a listen on demand button. You can sort by show name as well as date. And of course you can search on the website to find those programs. Did a lot of great work and I just think this is an interesting end cap conversation on today of all days. So let me give you a little background then we're going to go to the tape, okay? Yes. So last spring, the Natural History Museum of Utah, the Tanner Humanities Center, and the University of Utah's Anthropology Department, well, Nick, they received a substantial grant as part of NEH's A More Perfect Union Initiative. And they were selecting projects that, among other things, would investigate, examine, and work to express the experiences of Native Americans and other underrepresented communities throughout what they term our wholly imperfect American history. And as a college professor, I'm sure you're familiar with that. Oh, the notion of who gets to write history is, of course, paramount and too often examined or these days too often oppressed with the voices yeah. who actually know the history getting to speak it. But to me, this is a fairly huge monumental change that we see going on all over the nation. Well, historically, natural history museums like the one we have here, they've done a poor job collecting a <laughs> deep cultural knowledge embedded in the objects that they curate. So NHMU's primary goal with what they're calling the Native Voices Initiative is to center indigenous knowledge in their collections and also solicit recommendations for how the museum manages cultural objects and educates the public about them. So let's find out more. Let's go to my conversation Zoomed earlier today. Hi, I'm Dr. Alex Greenwald. I'm curator of ethnography at the Natural History Museum of Utah. 
and Assistant Professor of Anthropology at the University of Utah. Yes, my name is Sam Minkler, and I'm, I'm a Navajo. I just had my 72nd birthday uh, just a while ago, and I'm a professor of photography at Northern Arizona University. Thank you so much for joining us on Radioactive. We are so pleased to amplify this project with you. Uh, Dr. Greenwald, can you kind of give us the backstory on how we get to this moment and this project with Natural History Museum of Utah? Yeah, so pretty early on in the COVID epidemic, it became clear that there was a huge disparity between how different communities were being affected by the pandemic, um, especially Native communities, especially elders in Native communities. Uh, were being disproportionately affected. Um, and, and that sort of coupled with our longstanding desire to preserve cultural knowledge at the museum and make sure that we are centering indigenous voices in our collections. We really wanted an avenue to um, safely bring in uh, native elders and artists to get their perspectives on the objects in our collection. So everything from um, how we should be handling and storing things, whether or not things should be on exhibit, um, how we educate the public about them, and the deep cultural knowledge that comes with a lot of the objects in our collections. And there's sort of uh, historically been, uh, when when museums acquire objects, um, in our case, our, our objects end up in our collection because we purchase them from artists um, or they're donated to us by people who purchase them from artists. Uh, but even uh, in that exchange, often the deep cultural knowledge that comes with those objects is lost. So, you know, how something is made, the the process of making it, what the designs mean, um, and the experiences of the people who make them are are lost. And we're hoping to reunite that information with our objects and, and really highlight the communities that are represented in our collections. This is called the Native Voices Initiative. And according to the information you sent over, it's also part of a an effort to decolonize Native collections. You, uh, museums across the globe are reckoning with their collections, where they came from, what it means to uh, peoples, especially Indigenous communities, that are still living and breathing communities among us. And, and Sam, I'm kind of curious about your take on this project and how you feel it can rectify that situation. Um, <clears throat> I'm, I'm, I was very surprised uh, last, last summer, my family, the family from uh, Black Mesa, Rena, Rena Lane and uh, her family, they invited me to or be a part of uh, uh, part of this experience with them. I really didn't expect it, and I thought I was. I actually was in Denver, coming back from a Sundance in South Dakota, and I got the call, and they said it, it's tomorrow. You gotta leave tomorrow, and uh, we were gonna hang out a little bit in Denver, and then all of a sudden we had to drive all the way back through Moab, Utah, back to. Uh, Monument Valley, Kayanta, back to Tuba City, back to Flagstaff, and then slept a couple hours, changed cars, changed all my clothes and everything, and then headed up uh, up uh, to participate with them. And and I think it's uh, uh they just felt that um that uh, it was important to include me, and I'm real thankful for that. And uh, I know that. They they've been um, traveling. I've seen them at shows, you know, where I've 
I, I participated and I, I've seen them uh, uh, representing other weavers from uh, th this very, very remote place that they live on, which is um, up on Black Mesa. It's a, a large geological, the largest geological feature in um, Northern Arizona. And so <clears throat> I I just always uh, uh, felt that they they were great uh, representatives, and they take they collect other people's rugs and take them out to different communities, and then uh, we're fortunate to be included, you know, at in Salt Lake, you know, at the Natural History Museum, and uh, I just felt that, um, uh, you know, real. I guess I, I, an unexpected honor <laughs> to partake and to be their voice for them, you know, because they're mono, pretty much monolingual English, except the kids can speak English as well. But grandma is the one that was monolingual and uh, Navajo only. So I just uh, was honored. And she's uh, she just celebrated her 100th birthday, you know. So it meant a lot for her to try to speak through me so I don't I hope I'm effective you know in in this regard so Alex you had Sam his aunt who's now a hundred uh Rena Lane and a weaver Navajo weaver plus her daughters Mary and Zena came up to the collection right tell us how that went and and you recorded it both audio and video what's going to happen with those conversations yeah, so um, we went into our big collections room. Um, so one thing visitors to our museum might not realize is um, not only do we have stuff on exhibition in our galleries, but we have a vast collection um, in a very large room. Um, and so we pulled as many rugs out as we could fit on a table that we thought that they might have insight about um, and uh, just sat and listened and learned from them, um, heard stories and songs, got insights into um, how she makes her rugs um, and stories from her childhood. Um, so it was a wonderful experience to hear their perspectives. Um, and so, yeah, we were recording. Uh, and the goal of these recordings is to, is there are multiple goals. Um, one of them is to, um, with the consent of participants, include clips um, on exhibit in our Native Voices Gallery um, to, to update the stories that we have available for the public to learn from. Um, so, you know, clips about how the rugs are made, um, life stories, th those types of things. Um, so uh, enrich that exhibit and update it. And um, also we will be creating, uh, we're in the process of creating it right now, a website um, on the platform Lukatu. Um, and this is an open source platform uh, developed with indigenous communities uh, that is going to allow us to share back images of all of our objects we have in our collections with native communities. So digital repatriation um, combined with all of the um, video and audio recordings, any still photos we have, um, so sort of package these together um, and return um, control and access to the tribes. Um, so let's say there's a story that should only be told in the winter. Um, tribal members can create cultural protocols to make sure that 
um, people can only access those stories in the winter, say, or if it's only a story for men to hear that only men can hear it. Um, and so these, this website is more geared towards tribal communities than the general public, um, but it's part of an ongoing effort to make sure that Native communities have a say in how and what is shared with the public. And Sam, as someone who is Navajo, how important that is that to you and your family and friends and the tribe to have that kind of control? You know, um, um, it was mentioned that the re repatriation, uh, it was a law passed like 1990, I think it was, to for objects that were taken a long time ago to be returned. And I really liked, um, you know, the Natural History Museum there that they're probably, I don't know, it's probably like one of the best efforts of of, of any um, museum like recent, you know, recently, and uh, to and also to to take it a step up by digital repatriation, and and also it's really cool that 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 there's a protocol, you know, like if it isn't if it's a story isn't meant to be told at a certain time of year that, you know, there's a, there's a protocol to, to address those kind of things. So I think it's very, um, um, uh, I guess, uh, futuristically hopeful, you know, and, and also it's not just for the general public or world audience. Really, it's really important for our young people, you know, like, that maybe want to weave again, you know, like, um, like eventually, like, and some of the patterns and and some of the techniques that um, are my my uh, relatives express and also maybe confirmed, you know, with the um, rug room uh, the, or the area where these were stored at. So I just think that uh, it's hopeful, and uh, and uh, and I just think that it's. Uh, in keeping with uh, the intent, you know, of just a lot of protection of of um, of uh, technique and just protection of that it's ours, you know, it belongs to natives in a sense that that uh, people can't just copy it and and uh, that's important, you know, that it's against the law to do that. Also, you know, for someone to make designs and 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 uh, run with them. So I think it's real important that, um, you know, to, that it's uh, the preservation effort is is there with, uh, and, and there's consciousness about this. So where does this go next, Alex? Uh, I know there's a six-year plan. Can you share some of the details about the Native Voices Initiative as it continues? Yeah, so, um... Right now we're still in the stage where we're interviewing folks like just finished up working with San Juan Southern Paiute visitors today. We had uh, council members from their tribe. Um, we have additional folks coming through the end of the year. Um, so we're still very much in the interviewing stage, um, developing the website, um, transcribing interviews, um, sort of the next stage as we um, polish our recordings and get them transcribed is going back to the people we've talked to and making sure we still have their consent, um, clarifying what is appropriate for the public, what is not, setting up the website, um, allowing 
elders and interviewees access to the website as as they're able or through a representative who feels more tech savvy um, to set up these protocols that they feel comfortable with. Um, we also, with this grant, have funding to um, update our Native Voices exhibit. Um, so these are going to be things like updated recordings, um, adding uh, some additional objects to the display, um, spending more time focusing on the impacts of colonization and the boarding school experience on uh, Utah tribal members, um, adding uh, labels in uh, the languages appropriate to the cultures that the objects are from, not just in English. Um, and then we also have funding to hire a native educational consultant that's going to help us um, develop uh, sort of K through 12 level curriculum um, for students in native communities to learn from and that creating sort of a, a parallel piece for the general public kids um, to also learn from um, so that these are available for uh, many communities across Utah to get a better sense of the diversity of native cultures here, that native cultures are still here um, and, and learn either about it from the outside or the inside as appropriate. Thank you, Dr. Greenwald. And Sam, I'll leave the last word to you. What is it you want the rest of the world, because this will be available, some of it on the internet, but also folks in Utah to understand about tribal communities, their heritage, their stories, their art, and um, how to interact with it at the museum level or just in general, Sam? I think... Um... <clears throat> That's a that's a really tough question. It's really big, you know. And that I just think that people people don't understand fully, you know. We're we're um, we're uh, small now. Like we've been put on reservations, and you know, through military um, maneuvers and and just by laws, you know, our our populations have decreased. I just think that it. To me, like, I mean, like, we're all the way down to South America, what we call it, Turtle Island, Island that Native Americans have been here, you know, and, and, that, and I just I just think that sometimes uh, people, like, I live in Flagstaff, and we have a university here, and uh, hardly anyone goes to the Hopi Reservation or Navajo. I mean, they, they don't understand these kids from... Uh, California, Scottsdale, you know, different uh, communities that are, you know, to be the ones that are educated well, or or at least economically, they don't even go to the reservations. And I think it's sad that there's not interest. And in, uh, I know as an artist, you know, we, we like, um, we see uh, a decline, like maybe in, uh, maybe it's the, maybe we, existed in the myth of cowboys and Indians to the point where that's not as popular now. You know, the new kids, the, the new generation, um, I don't know, they, they don't understand like, uh, you know, like Hopi pottery or maybe Navajo weavings and, and like, for instance, uh, you know, like silver and what it means in turquoise. It's, there's kind of a decline in art, you know, Maybe it was popular for a while, really popular, you know, 
but like even in, if you go to some galleries, you know, it's, it, you know, we always, uh, you know, as artists, I go to art markets, you know, and sell art. And um, I always think like, wow, uh, how do we uh, keep this? Uh, how do we educate people? It's not, how do we educate people that, like, we were here before 300 years ago, you know? And I love it when people emphasize the fact that maybe, you know, there's, you know, we're, we've been here over 20,000 years. That should be in the curriculums and in, in, in schools and at university. I didn't know. So I didn't even know I wasn't an American. We are Native Americans weren't American citizens till 1924, you know, and, and we didn't have the right to vote in Arizona 1948. And 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 those are just like basic basic American uh, curriculum like highlights of an, uh, someone well educated. So I think like you know like what what you're what the I guess the museum's doing is it's way deeper than they're they're so much deeper than that you know, and that and that people need to really understand you know the the value of that knowledge. You know that we Americans should be proud of of you know the I mean if you can think like people are saying we're going to go to Mars just think those people you know we continually like travel like we still go to explore as natives you know I go to New York I discovered New York you know <laughs> and I discover things and we. And and people like Chaco Canyon, for instance, was a center of trade. I mean that that was amazing, and and the scientific alignment of of um, like celestial um, alignments and and the the knowledge of equinox and just that we're not given credit enough, you know. And the thing about Navajo weaving is women. That's completely mathematical, you know. That's like counting, and when you get to the center, you need to start behaving it differently. And some Navajo women can weave rugs, whereas one pattern on one side and a different pattern on the other side without looking on the other side, you know. Without, <laughs> I just—they're mathematical geniuses. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's just. I can't, I just can't um, believe that we're not often given credit, you know, for, and we always were told that we're, I went to boarding school. I remember people, you say, you need to be civilized, you know, and you look at the world today and I think, oh my God, you need to be civilized and not put so much plastic in the ocean, you know, just, and then I don't know, it's just, uh, it's so important, you know, that maybe People should listen to other cultures and have that understanding and have it valued, not just as something to display, but to actually learn from and, you know, and integrate that into uh, a, co a har harmonious existence with, with the plants and, and animals, our relatives, and, you know, treat insects you know, as part of us. I mean, that's that's kind of the native, for me, the native side of me feels that, you know, like I have a anthill in the back 
and uh, it's right outside my door. I'm not going to dig it up because, you know, that's they lived here first, you know. So I just I just think that it's really important that what what's happening, you know, like at, at this museum is like it, it's a big step and and. And it's a beautiful structure, and 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 it's a great, a great place for people to discover. I think that's important is to, to to kind of give the philosophy of, of um, like um, Mother Earth harmony between Father Sky, and we live between these two important things that we can't destroy. I'm Valiant MC of Living the Circle of Life, plugging you into music, stories, and voices for Native American Heritage Month. Joy Harjo is internationally renowned performer and writer of the Muskegee Creek Nation. She was the first Native American to be named U.S. Poet Laureate and served three terms from 2019 to 2022. Her many works include her famous poem, I Give You Back, also known as the Fear Poem. I Give You Back. I release you, my beautiful and terrible fear, I release you. You are my beloved and hated twin, but now I don't know you as myself. I release you with all the pain I would know at the death of my children. You are not my blood anymore. I give you back to the soldiers who burned down my home, beheaded my children, raped and sodomized my brothers and sisters. I give you back to those who stole the food from our plates when we were starving. I release you, fear, because you hold these scenes in front of me, and I was born with eyes that can never close. I release you. I release you. I release you. I release you. I am not afraid to be angry. I am not afraid to rejoice. I am not afraid to be black. I am not afraid to be white. I am not afraid to be hungry. I am not afraid to be full. I am not afraid to be hated. I am not afraid to be loved, to be loved, to be loved, fear. Oh, you have choked me, but I gave you the leash. You have gutted me, but I gave you the knife. You have devoured me, but I laid myself across the fire. I take myself back, fear. You are not my shadow any longer. I won't hold you in my hands. You can't live in my eyes, my ears, my voice, my belly, or in my heart. My heart, my heart, my heart. But come here, fear. I am alive, and you are so afraid of dying. That's Joy Harjo reading her poem, I Give You Back. Harjo is also the author of nine books of poetry and several plays, including children's books and two memoirs, Crazy Brave and Poet Warrior. And we celebrate her creativity and indigenous excellence during Native American Heritage Month on KRCL. Support for Radioactive on KRCL comes from Mark Miller Subaru and the Subaru Share the Love event. 
a partnership with local charities in delivering hope this holiday season. Learn more and info on how to get involved at markmillersubaru.com. Support for KRCL comes from the Utah Farm and Food Conference, January 12th to 14th in Cedar City, where more than 200 attendees will gather to learn and network about the agrihood, from small to urban farms and artisan producers to those who support them. For tickets and conference schedule, visit utahfarmconference.org. KRCL is turning 43, and we're inviting you to come out and celebrate the station's anniversary with us at our first ever Holiday Soul Party on December 3rd at the Commonwealth Room in Salt Lake City. KRCL DJs, photo booth, food truck, and live music with Ryan Innes, AM Bump, and the Omega Horns with a special VIP soul set with me, eBay Hamilton. So come on out and celebrate 43 years of community radio with a night full of feel-good soul music and all your favorite radio friends here at KRCL. That's Saturday, December 3rd at the Commonwealth Room. Get your tickets now at krcl.org. And hope to see you there. Nick, you got your tickets? You're good to go? Uh, I've heard I've got tickets waiting, but (laughs) yes, it's a pretty big deal. 43 years, I have to say. I've been here almost half of that. Oh, yeah? It's pretty cool, That's actually. pretty cool. That's um, because this is an amazing radio station. You know, we were able to bring Ryan in, who's our featured artist uh, at the party, earlier this afternoon. Folks, if you missed it, you can listen on demand to any show for the next two weeks at krcl.org. Hit the Programs tab. Coming up at 7. Democracy Now! Followed by Rude Awakening with Liz at 8. Maximum Distortion with Forgash and Cody D at 10.30. And a brand new day with John Florence at 6 a.m. Nick Burns, it's time... We're not going to swear. We're not going to swear. It's so tempting, even with baby swear words. But tonight on the show, we've got a panel, and it's it's round two, I want to say, of our grassroots exploration of UDOT's proposed, in my mind, <clears throat> speaking as a pundit, massive Interstate 15 expansion. So some folks joining us tonight. Taylor Anderson, you're with Sweet Streets. Tell me about yourself and Sweet Streets. Yeah, so Sweet Streets is a volunteer nonprofit organization based in Salt Lake City. We have a board of about eight people that live on the east side and the west side of of Salt Lake. And we usually focus on issues around transportation, the way we get around, the the places that we spend our time, like parks, um, you know, our sidewalks, our transit systems, and then the divides that are created by our transportation systems. And that's what brought us to this issue. And I must say, I saw you arrive tonight, and you came on a nice, large, was that an electric bike? Yeah, it's an e-bike. It's my uh, power wagon. It's a like, my <laughs> pickup truck, but uh, yeah, that's how I got here. And you live on the east side, so thank you for making the trek, because our station now is quite near the train tracks and quite near <clears throat> this expansion. Yeah, I did a little tour of some of the houses, some of the neighborhoods that are going to be most impacted directly, uh, including Janet here, and um, yeah. I'm happy to be here to talk. Thanks for having me. Plenty to talk about. Janet Fisher, hi. Hi. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, Go ahead. You you live on Argyle <laughs> Street, so you're literally like a block and a half away, and you're already next to the freeway. I am. Um, so I'm a longtime resident of Argyle Court, one of the original streets that NeighborWorks developed um, in the mid-'90s. And uh, I-15 is in my backyard. I can touch the wall. Right. You have a great big wall separating you now. And I, I, I would have to count up the number of lanes now. But adding a lane to each side, that pretty much go through your living room. 
means my house will be gone. Yeah. And you've lived there since it was built, correct? Since NeighborWorks did Argyle Street. Yes. Um, Many of the residents on Argyle Court are original homeowners. And are you all together, I presume, rather up in arms? But thank you for joining us tonight. We are very concerned about um, how uh, UDOT will be dictating our lives. And I understand that, that no one sort of came to you and said, gee, get ready for this. No. Um, we uh, received in the mail about three weeks ago uh, a, a flyer, uh, 8 by 11 flyer. It looked like junk mail <laughs> um, that uh, notified us about, um, about meetings about this expansion. And uh, we went around the neighborhood and just alerted everybody uh, to pay attention to this because a lot of people didn't even recognize that they that they got any information. Hmm. Um, I think during that meeting, uh, the I-15 planning team alluded to some something that they did this past summer, but none of us have an awareness of of what that was. Oh. Dan Strong, Westside Coalition, what's your take on how this public relations has rolled out about this expansion? Uh, yeah, not great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no swearing. Uh, thanks for welcoming me. I'm oh. Dan Strong. I live in Rose Park. I think I'm maybe Laura's neighbor these days. So uh, I'm president of Westside Coalition. I grew up in Davis County, so I've been kind of on both sides of this development. But uh, as far as the public relations goes, um, uh, like you all, I, I heard, you know, I think the day it was released, hey, this alternative study is out and it looks pretty ugly. So I opened it up and didn't really know what I would see. And, yeah, I saw some things in there initially, like uh, pedestrian crossings from the east to the west of the freeway. I thought this looks pretty good. So I started looking closer. I'm like, are they talking about widening the freeway? I mean, this is the first I heard of it. So, uh, I mean, uh, apparently I've been looking into it, for, into it for a little while, I, I guess, but there hasn't been a lot of outreach the public comment period that we were given was originally middle of December. Um, it wasn't much time at all. Um, so our first big advocacy push was extend that public comment period. And we worked with some of the other groups like Sweet Streets to really push that. And we did succeed. They've extended that till January 13th. Okay. So now we're working to bring the community together and collect as many comments as we can and try to coalesce those into a, co- a coherent message that we can really get behind. And, uh, and luckily, we've been given a little more time to do that. So it is kind of an early win um, in what's probably going to be a long process. Yeah. So before we get too deep into this, this is round two. As I mentioned, we've had Sweet Streets on before and other folks to talk about this. But, Dan, I'll keep with you an overview here. You know, this was pitched, at least in what is what I read, as, gee, this would, in- this would help commute times. So you all here tonight are West Siders here in Salt Lake. But this has been pitched. Well, Taylor, you're on the east side, so excuse me. But this is pitched as not even helping the people who live here. Right. It seems to be (laughs) the idea seems to be to limit or reduce uh, commute between, you know, Davis County and the core of Salt Lake. And I understand that a lot of people made that commute. I've I've been one of them before. It's not always pleasant. But I've also lived in a lot of other big cities. Right. I've lived in uh, in the Bay Area. Jan's been in Boston. Another 10 minutes to get from you know, across those 12 miles is, is really not asking that much. I've seen the projections in the uh, in the uh, the study that, you know, this the commute time could could grow over the next however many years. Um, and, and, you know, that may happen. But that is what happens in a city with growth. And we're a city with growth, with a lot of growth. And you have to make trade offs. And I don't think that a reasonable trade off to ask of this community or really the state of the, as a whole is to keep growing our highway system endlessly. I think we have to look at other trade offs. And if you look at other cities that have grown, 
um, and have, 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 have seen these explosions population, eventually they get good public transit solutions. And that's yeah. really what I think we're advocating for. Good, good answer. Thank you. So Taylor, bring you back in here. You know, one of the issues I see, because I grew up back east, um, those cities grew up big before the car, really. Mm -hmm. So they grew up with subways, with public transportation. Here in the West, Los Angeles comes to mind, the Bay Area, Salt Lake City, Denver, Seattle, Portland. Those all grew up, we have all grown up with the car. So to me, this seems like really backward thinking. Well, we haven't exactly. Um, I have to remind you that we had a, a an elaborate network of of trolley lines throughout ah, Salt Lake you. City, which were purchased by car companies, which were then decommissioned. So we didn't actually grow up with the car, not to split hairs here. Um, well, the subdivisions certainly grew up with the cars because the trolleys didn't go out to Midvale and whatnot particularly, right? Certainly, yeah. Okay. And so part of this, this concern about never-ending highway expansion, this addic addiction to... <laughs> building and then expanding and then expanding and then expanding one more lane each time or four more lanes each time our highway system is that it, it begets sprawl so we have been we've been watching as we sprawl out which then allows for these green fields to be developed into new towns and new subdivisions which then needs more lanes because people can only drive there because we haven't built transit there and then it just kind of is this perpetual cycle where we look around and we say well i can't get from farmington to salt lake city in a reasonable amount of time well there's no transit to do that the only way to do it is by the car and the more that these towns grow and the more that this kind of cycle perpetuates itself the more that we're just locked into this system well it is like crack right you're addicted to your car <laughs> and then the only solution is more car that's a I mean, I mean we've talked about this in the show right that it's really great you can buy a prius and get 50 miles to the gallon but for many people that just means you can live in spanish fark now or 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 you know harriman and commute because you can afford the gas it it seems just bass backwards to me. The the sad thank you for not swearing. The sad thank you. The sad rea <laughs> reality is we're talking about one more lane, just one more lane, just one more lane, just like your analogy just oh. just was. Now it's only going to cost us 1.6 billion dollars to do this expansion after we just did it in South Salt Lake County, after we just did it in Utah County, after we're in the middle of doing it on I-80 on I-215, building a new freeway in West Davis, after just creating a new freeway on US 89 in Davis County, like, when does it end? How much money, you know, do we do we spend on on how perpetuating many, this? How many free electric buses could we have for a billion and a half dollars? Or even just paying bus drivers to operate the system that the we system have. The system we got, yes. Good point. We don't even we can't even afford the bus drivers we've got. Yeah, let's talk about that for just a second oh, in sure. terms of an uh, you know, part of the the equation going forward. If is there a bus shortage or is there an uh, unwillingness or a lack of budget to pay people to be bus drivers given the current economic situation, Nick? I mean, I'm totally spoiled. I live in Summit County. The buses are free, right? <laughs> people are just willing to pay for that. So you get on the bus in Summit County and there's a little, like it looks like a tip jar, right? And so I give them some money, but you don't have to. So if everybody who's skiing, you're staying at the resort up there, you don't need to rent a car. You can just take the bus. It's pretty okay. cool. I can hear UDOT and UTA folks if they're listening to this or later listening to this. Like, you naive Pollyanna folks. So let's play <laughs> some devil's advocate with our panelists. Is this just a sacrifice that some of us have to make for future uh, folks who are going to be moving here and living here? And is it a reasonable expectation that, yeah, some of us are going to lose our homes or our businesses? I see Taylor crawling toward the mic. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to point out that that one person that is potentially going to lose her home uh, that, that she's had for 25 plus years is sitting right next to me. And so I would love to hear from Janet. 
Um, I would say that uh, it feels grossly unfair. Um, I live on a street that was developed by NeighborWorks to be an exemplar of um, of a, a development that took over a, a prior street that I understood had a very high crime rate, and they created a community um, that has a very strong neighborhood structure. And um, many of us have been there well over 20 years. Um, and I just, I, I, I guess I just feel very perplexed why we're hearing an awful lot about the West Side and how we want to support the West Side. But, you know, the first uh, area to sort of literally be thrown under the bus is under the, the west freeway, yeah. yeah is the west under side the Chevy, yes. and you know how do i feel about my house being given up so people have 10 fewer minutes uh, of commute time i no i don't feel good about that i think that's really unfair when you were asked to invest in that part of the city like you said to take up residence to care about the city now uh can i bring some politics into this nick sure rocky anderson former Salt Lake City Mayor, threw his hat into the ring officially yep. today. Yep. I imagine this is going to become a huge part of the next Salt Lake City mayoral campaign. Have you heard anything from uh, your city council person, the mayor? Um, I know we've got our state representatives, House and Senate, planning some meetings next week, and we'll get to the, those. But have you had any outreach or junk no. mail-looking mailers? No, we have not mm. heard anything from any of the representatives, and it feels... It, it just feels very frightening. Uh, it's understanding it's very frightening when you see your neighborhood decimated so someone who lives 50 miles away can get to town quicker, adding pollution all the way. Um, and I guess I want to ask about that quickly, too. We talked about the billion and a half taxpayer dollars, but what we haven't talked about is the true, I guess I would call it, and I guess I'd throw this to you, Dan, the true social cost. Forget the billion and a half. I mean, there's three and a half million of us, so I guess somehow we absorb a billion and a half, but you know, the highway's already an asthma corridor. And so what's the true social cost here? And it seems as if those at UDOT don't even think of that. Right, right. I mean, as I hear all these uh, the last few questions and answers, it feels like um, the, that, that there's an effort to frame this as some sort of, uh, as a zero-sum game. You know, in order to grow, uh, these people have to sacrifice or this, uh, the, you know, this public health uh, disparity has to be uh, perpetuated. I don't see it that way. I think there are forward-thinking, innovative solutions that can get done what this project wants to get done, which is get people more quickly from Farmington to Salt Lake without, while improving the public health in the area and while probably making money for some of the, for the state and some other people who still want to do this. I mean, one idea that's been bandied around, I've seen the, the Cicero Institute in California write about this with the 101, is burying these highways, burying these freeways, not for the whole stretch, but for we have a, a piece of this that goes through the urban core of Salt Lake City, which is very uh, valuable property. Why not put it underground, develop it, make money just like they're doing at the point at the prison off of that? And uh, and reconnect these communities that for seventy years have been uh, walled off from each other and disparities perpetuated. Are you talking tunnel it or just dig it underground? Just dig a ditch. Well, I mean, you got to go through it, right? <laughs> no, but I mean, totally underground and then housing on top a that's tunnel. What, I mean, that's what I'd envision. Yeah, something where you could where you could uh, you, you bury it underground in, in a tunnel. Um, 
and then develop the, the land on top of it. And what I've seen from the Cicero Institute is that, at least in San Francisco, that that is estimated to more than pay for itself. For every mile that you bury, you can develop that land and build housing and build parks and build uh, you know, yeah. um, income-generating properties. Well, Seattle, is, Seattle is working on that with the big, massive tunnel. They want to tear down the overhead freeway down by Pike's Place Market and whatnot. I ask that about tunneling or just a ditch because— I grew up in the Detroit area, and one of the big freeways there that ripped through the city in the 1950s is one story underground with concrete walls, mm. and it floods yeah. <laughs> when it rains really hard. So climate change in that freeway, I don't know. But like you say, if you actually put it underground and then put concrete back on top, that's a lot of place for houses and apartment buildings, and your house, Janet, could stay. Right. So I just wanted to get back to, um, you know, the um, social impact and uh, how people who this will impact are, are feeling about this. And it, I mean, it's not just our loss of our houses that we have worked very hard to, um, you know, to make livable, um, but it's the loss of community. And I feel that um, that was one of the biggest uh, things that Neighborhood Works uh, wanted to wanted to really um, develop, and and they did develop it. I mean, our community uh, used to have um, nights out against crime. We used to have wine clubs. We, I mean, there was an awful lot of work done to bring the community together, and it worked. Um, and a community is, it, it's hard to develop. It's, it's not an overnight thing. It's something that gets nurtured over time. It's a neighbor, you know, just being willing to, uh, to lend a hand when you're, when you're uh, doing something around your house. Shoveling it's, the walk with a snowstorm that just came through. Yes, yes. Which is Have most of you lived there since it was built? You've been there since it was I new. I would say that um, probably 60% wow. of us have been there 20 years or longer. And you, you build um, a new freeway and you just put 100,000 more people individually in cars, which isn't much of a community. Yeah. This is Radioactive. I'm Nick Burns. This is, of course, your Community Connection, 90.9 FM KRCL, talking with Janet Fisher, a homeowner who lives right near the station here on Argyle Court. And this 23-lane maw of concrete, should it be built, would basically rip up all of her and her neighbors' homes. Also with us, Taylor Anderson of Sweet Streets, SLC. I love saying that, Taylor. <laughs> and also Dan Fisher of the West Side Coalition. The activism, Dan, uh, the activism, Dan, is starting to mount. There's a huge event next week at the fair part with some elected officials actually coming. Yeah, I uh, just learned of this. Um, there's a lot happening. Uh, so I believe at the fair park on Thursday the 8th is a listening session, um, a community listening session at 6.30 p.m. at the Zion Building. And so far we know that Senator Luz Escamilla, Representative Romero, Representative Hollins will be there. Of course, all three really great advocates for the West Side and the people we work with a lot. Um, I will say I've, I've emailed communi communicated via email with Senator Weiler, whose district also uh, covers the Rose Park neighborhood and some other neighborhoods in Salt Lake City, especially after it was redrawn. And uh, we're hoping to hear from him and hoping to get more engagement from him on this project as well. Any feeling about where any of these elected officials stand on supporting or yay or nay on this project? I don't. It's early. Okay. Um, you know, we do have a lot of elected officials um, in, in power positions right now who live in Davis County. And so I'm interested to know what their perspective is on it. Well, to me, it just seems like the, the announcement, Janet, you mentioned a mailer that was a little bit vague. 
A lot of this seemed to happen <clears throat> kind of after the election was already going. It makes me wonder about timing a little bit. Yeah, I don't. I don't know what to read in there. You were um, you were going to swear, weren't you? Yeah, <laughs> we're hoping. Like, don't ask me that question. <laughs> I mean, I'd say we're hoping to work with all of these people in partnership. And I think, uh, like I said, I think there are forward-thinking uh, solutions that can be win-wins for everybody. It doesn't have to be our neighborhood against the state. I think we can come up with things that that uh, that solve the problems they've identified without uh, impacting people and, and removing homes and in, uh, in, from these vulnerable communities. Good point. So Taylor Anderson, Sweet Streets SLC, bring you back in. Your research, your nonprofit group, what do you see working in other cities in terms of public transportation or like getting people out of cars? Well, okay. So I wanted to say one thing about the connections or the divides that streets and, and just transportation infrastructure can create. And we see it. And that's why we say I'm from the east side and the others in the room are from the west side, because generally I think people use I-15, the ultimate divider in the city, along with the railroad tracks as being the east-west divide. Um, Good point. You know, streets can either connect you with your neighbors. Like Janet said, she has a very strong block of neighbors who know each other, who can speak out across the street to each other and, and maintain their friendships and the bonds that they have. And we have streets or roads like Redwood Road, like State Street, like 7th East, like Foothill Boulevard, like 5th South, 6th South, 4th South, that are all dividing us up into these little psychological barriers that that is your dividing line that you don't know who's across that road. You don't know, you don't really meet, maybe even venture across that road because it's so unpleasant. And so what I'm saying is I-15 is the ultimate divider. And I think the state had shown a little bit of willingness to make some connections from the east side to the west side. And I want to see more of those, as many as possible. Mm. I think there have been some great ideas about undergrounding and exploring that. I want to know if the state has done any research, because I know they've researched double-deckering de double the interstate. Have they done the same research to, to actually bridging this and actually creating either developable land or new park space and, and, and solving some of the issues with pollution, solving some of the issues with noise, because this is going to make all those worse and um, likely increase the number of traffic fatalities, which good. keeps going up as yeah, well. Yeah, good point. When you mentioned this notion of how these large streets and, and how the, the essential design of the transportation system we have, very car-centric, how that separates people, I wonder if that doesn't just continually feed the notion of I want to be alone in my car because I don't know who lives next door anyway, so I might as well just drive to the store for a quart of milk. I mean, it just, it seems to all feed. There's, there's this, uh, what, that Snickers commercial where it's not, you're, you're not you when you're hungry. You're not you when you're driving a car. I mean, you don't see the same things. You don't make the same connections. You are, are stressed. You know, I'm not, this isn't some propaganda about like all cars are, are bad. They kind of are. But, you know, you're a different person when you drive. And I think there's a different psychological mindset when um, mm -hmm. you feel like that's the only way that you can get around. I got a question. Qui bono? I, mean, I look at the, the gondola. I look at the expansion mm. of I-15. I look at where we spend our money, mm. who benefits. Now, at the same time, UDOT is saying, hey, look, these folks are coming, whether we like it or not. And our streets and our freeways, our interstate, they're all going to get more crowded. But... Um, are they? If we True. did something different? True. Well, that's my question. Is yeah. How do we get that general mindset shifted among ourselves to say, okay, we got to do some things differently. We've got to, you know, over the next 10 to 20 years, if we spent half a billion dollars on a gondola, can we, can we spend half a billion on more public transit, putting things underground? Uh, also, re-examining our relationship with work, which has happened 
since the pandemic, uh, there's at least one uh, former office building downtown in South Temple that's converting to residential because mm-hmm. folks are not coming back. So how much of that has gone into the analysis of where we'll be in 10, 20 years? And if you're worried about people commuting and they are going to stay in their cars, <clears throat> what about if we just staggered work start times? <laughs> I mean, there's a thousand things you could do before you need to pour how many billion cubic feet of concrete? Mm-hmm. But it doesn't seem to be in the forefront of UDOT's ability to think. The bottom line, as you said, they're coming. Our city is changing. Our state is changing. And if we don't change our idea, ideas with it, we're, we're not going to keep up. So public transit is a solution. Like I said, other cities that have reached this tipping point develop good public transit systems, and that's how they bring themselves to the next level, and we need to do the same. Taylor. One other thing I wanted to say was there's a mindset up on Capitol Hill that the car is freedom and public transit is a burden on society, um, they're both subsidized. This this project, it, this is not paid for. Our, our, our road system has not been, been paying for itself through gas taxes and through registration fees for a long time. That money is coming from the general fund, which funds schools and everything else that we you know, depend upon in this state. So they're both subsidized heavily. So there's not one, you know, freedom, uh, you know, transportation option, and the other one is just, you know, this socialism. That's that's a very good point, right? Because the general pitch is buses are socialized, subsidized for the poor, and the minute you can, you want a car. But then for many people, you have to have a car because the bus doesn't run when you work. And if you're required to own a car, are you really that free? Right. What's more freeing, to be able to walk into a a public transit system that will get you within half a mile of where you want to be or to have to own a car and be able to drive a car? Ask the elderly how many of them find that freeing, right? And ask the poor how many of them find that freeing. Um, and I would say that most people, I mean, you look at developments like like Harriman or, or Eagle Mountain. I mean, these aren't places that are, are known as their as, you know, dense urban core neighborhoods. <laughs> and yet they make a lot of use of the light rail. Um, the, the even the streetcar, which was sort of lambasted at the beginning, has seen a lot of use. I would argue that Utahns like public transit. And I think this this philosophy that, that they don't and they're just they love nothing more than the open road is really not keeping up with the times. Well, look at last February when we did free public transit, free public transit and ridership blossomed. A billion and a half dollars would pay a whole lot of bus drivers better, in my humble opinion. So, Janet, we've only got a few minutes left. Um, What's next for you and your neighbors? There's these listening sessions. There's, you know, we say all the time, contact your elected officials. Are you and your neighbors ready to, and this is a metaphor, I don't mean it literally, but are you ready to throw some bombs? (laughs) Um, I think that... uh we certainly will rally as many people to go to these meetings as possible. Um, yesterday, we all had on our um, front door um, handles a little um, bag that had a notification of the NeighborWorks meeting, as well as a little card that um, gave us information for contacting our um, our legislative Good. officials. So I, I would imagine that most people have, um, have taken um, that seriously and have, have done that. And it's a great example of something, Taylor, you mentioned, this notion of community, right? Janet, you know your neighbors. You, you are readily able to get together as a neighborhood and speak as one, whereas if you live across 4,500 south from each other, you have no idea who those people are. Right. Yeah. Good point. So real quickly, a couple minutes left, and again, next, this meeting on the 9th? 
How can people can find out and get involved? So to clarify, it's on the 8th. There's a meeting eighth, on the 8th at the Fair Park, um, and that's at 630. Uh, it's at the Zion Building, so show up and be heard. There's also on Monday, uh, NeighborWorks has come up a few times. They're great advocates for the West Side, and they're doing an open house on housing gentrification and I-15 expansion. That's Monday, so this coming Monday from 530 to 730 at the Sorensen Unity Center. That's on 9th West and about 1380 South. Um, so I, I would encourage people to go to either or both of those. Um, I think the purpose for both is, to, is again, to try to uh, get as much public feedback as we can to coalesce it into a, a message that we can try to drive home during this public comment period. So we need to hear from you. We need um, voices of people who, who maybe aren't always involved, um, uh, who, who, but who are, hear this and are, and are concerned, as they probably should be. Um, this is probably the biggest thing to hit our neighborhoods since I've been involved in advocacy, which wow. is, you know, about a decade. And, uh, and so we need to hear from you. So Monday and Thursday in the evenings, um, you can go to NeighborWorks uh, website to find out more about that uh, or, or uh, reach out to the, any of your community councils um, or the Westside Coalition. Thank you. Westside Coalition, a website to catch yeah, up with you all? Uh, WestsideSLC.org. And Sweet Streets, how do we catch up with you all? Uh, find us on social media or sweetstreets.org. And and Dan, do you think do you think the West Side? It seems to me the West Side voice is growing and getting a little bit more heard than maybe 20 years ago. I hope so. I mean, I've I've mentioned on the president of West Side Coalition. It's it's not a new group exactly, but it has expanded a lot and and uh, hopefully grown our voice. And you know, the reason we kind of came together in this way. Uh, we have six community councils, and like a lot of community councils, they're really focused on hyper-local issues. But as we get more and more of these things hitting the west side, like the prison, like like the inland port, now like this uh, freeway expansion, uh, we need to be able to advocate uh, together with one voice on those issues that cross neighborhood boundaries and affect the entire west side. Um, so that's why we're here. Um, we'd, again, love to get more public involvement uh, and, and to help, help us amplify your voice. Dan Strong, Westside Coalition. You are an advocacy and community building organization comprised of Salt Lake City's Westside residents and, of course, also business owners, one and all. Taylor Anderson, Sweet Streets, thank you. Thanks for having me. A nonprofit dedicated to changing land use and transportation from auto dependency to people first. And I think you made a really good point that car traffic is subsidized it isn't only public transit. But Janet Fisher, you live right here on Argyle Court. Would you come back on the show when, when we know more about this and maybe you know more about what's going to happen? Bring some of your neighbors. Yeah. Uh, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> so I want to thank all three of you tonight for taking taking opportunity here for round two. I'm sure we'll have a round three yeah. and a round four. Quick question, uh, and this is this is a lightning round. I'm working on an interview with Salt Lake City Mayor Aaron Mendenhall. Probably going to have to pre-record it. What would be your number one question for the mayor, Janet? Uh, what what role she could take in um, in ensuring that our houses don't get torn down? Okay, <laughs> Taylor. Uh, what is the mayor doing to end this period of never-ending highway uh, building, the, the crack phase of never-ending uh, highway construction? And Dan. I think it's the same. How can you help? All yeah, right. Nice. And that. Everybody is our show, Nick Burns. Yeah, December 1st tomorrow with the regulated use of psychedelic mushrooms. Gosh, that's that's moving into uh, Colorado with their vote last month. So tomorrow, Radioactive will take a look at that. Also tomorrow, World AIDS Day. So tune into Radioactive tomorrow for sure. Friday the 2nd, of course, is the best of Punk Rock Farmer Friday, featuring tales from 
the agrihood. So that's all that's all upcoming. Got a story you'd like to share on the show, issue you'd like us to cover, record a voice memo, just use your smartphone or however works for you. Drop it in an email to radioactive at krcl.org. Keep it under three minutes. Be sure to include your contact info. And as always, views, thoughts, opinions shared by guests and myself, for that matter, are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the board, staff, or members of Listeners Community Radio of Utah, 90.9 FM, krcl.org. Executive producer Laura Jones, thanks. Keep it tuned. Democracy Now! is next. Thanks, Nick Burns. KRCL, Salt Lake City. KRCL's Music Meets Movies takes a turn towards the holidays with a documentary film that dives into the underground world of alternative Christmas music. There is a underground of tape traders and CD traders across the country who do this, try to make cool Christmas discs every year. The worst music in the world is bad Christmas music. I found the typical Christmas music grill. So I thought I'd start making a soundtrack to get myself through the holidays. So we'll talk about what happens in Hollis, Christmas in Hollis. I call Bill back sweating. I just wrote the best round of my life. Christmas, you can love it or hate it, but you can't really ignore it. The music and the memories pierces that pathway. Of course, it's powerful. Join KRCL Thursday, December 8th at Brewies in Salt Lake for a screening of the 2013 documentary Jingle Bell Rocks. Tickets at the door at 6.30, movie at 7.30. Information at krcl.org. 